When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Kate Tellers. Kate is the director of MothWorks at The Moth, a live storytelling series and podcast. It's a very popular podcast. In fact, it's been around since I think I've known of podcast back in the summer of 2005. It is a Webby and award-winning podcast, and she is a storyteller, a director there at MothWorks. In this conversation, we talk about her new book, How to Tell a Story, The Essential Guide to Memorable Storytelling from the Moth. And in this conversation, we dive into that book. We talk about why storytelling is so important. You may remember that aspects of story and scripting, et cetera, as we've talked to Donald Miller in the past on this show, and how those aspects and principles of storytelling can be adapted to live a good life. And that is partially what we tap into into this conversation, but more so ever, just storytelling as a productivity skill on a macro level about telling your story overall, getting clarity on your own story, to tell your story and what part of your story needs to be told at given moments, and then even on a micro level in terms of persuasion and getting others on board to something you're telling a story about for persuasion's sake, whether it's a presentation or it's just getting up and having a conversation, it's public speaking, it's writing, it's it's podcasting. We talk about all of that in this conversation. So this is definitely a skill to add to your productivity toolkit. And I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Kate Tellers. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Kate Tellers. Kate, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Hi, thank you for having me. Honestly, I was kind of geeked out and a little super excited when I got the pitch about the moth doing a book because I've been a fan of The Moth for a very long time. And some people might not know what that is. So let's start there and just say, what is The Moth for podcast listeners who have not been aware of what it is? Sure. So we're a not-for-profit organization. This is our 25th anniversary. We're dedicated to the art and craft of storytelling. So we help people tell true stories from their lives on stage and without notes. And those shows are recorded. You can hear us on our Peabody Award-winning radio hour. You can hear us on our podcast, which is downloaded over 90 million times per year. You can read some of those stories in our compilations and you can take workshops with us. And then this year, we also released a book, How to Tell a Story. So we now do what we do in workshops is now written and committed to the page. Very, very cool. I've got to say, like, this is a killer book. This is one of those ones that's going to help people all across the spectrum of what they're doing, because 
And I'm going to ask you this in a second. What do you think? Why is storytelling so important for me from a productivity angle? It's got a macro and a micro element. The macro element is if you're telling your life story overall, which is, you know, many, many, many chapters by honing that skill, by getting better at that, you, you bring clarity to your life, which brings the ability to triage better in the moment as well as plan and execute. But then obviously in the micro level, when it comes to work and productivity, getting people on board, persuading people, whether that's yourself or others and stories are a big part of that when it comes to like in this instance, public speaking or writing or podcasting like we're doing right now. It's a huge deal. What was the impetus? What's the catalyst here for why is storytelling so important and why was the moth formed to teach that? So my goodness, Eric, you sort of, I feel like I should hang up because I feel like you really nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the first thing that you said, you know, I'm like raising my hands in the air. It's exactly that. I think the beauty of storytelling as a form, as a communication tool, as a way to connect, as an expression of creativity, as a community builder of all of the things, it's that clarity. It's that truth. That is the North Star. That is the priority. Whether you're telling a story on stage, whether you're telling a story to open up a business presentation, whether you're giving a wedding toast and all of the ways that we use story, crafting a story, really sort of considering the pieces of your experience and the pieces of your life and looking for the real and true meaning of that. The end result is compelling, is the most interesting, is you know a tremendous product in and of itself. But the process of doing that, like the consideration of that, of getting that clarity to your point about productivity and efficiency, you have a clearer understanding of how all of the events leading up to this day have made you, informed you and connect you to yourself in a way that I think is truly unique and supreme to storytelling. I'd love to dive into both those paths there, the macro and that micro, kind of as I outlined it and as you talked about it. Macro level Somebody's never heard of, you know, telling their own story. In other words, somebody walks in and enters the atmosphere or the orbit of the moth, and they're interested in what's being done. In other words, they see people telling a story. They're drawn to it because that's naturally what a story does. But then what are the next steps for that person once they've been hooked and they kind of say, hmm, I wonder if I can do that or should do that? How do you usher that person into, I don't know what the next step is, but, you know, acceptance, (laughs) acceptance slash confidence slash practice towards crafting stories and their own story. Sure. Well, so I'll say this. Our book is dedicated to the untold stories in all of us. And our dream, like the ideal audience for this book, are people that are exactly like what you're describing. People that are like maybe interested in storytelling, but don't believe that they have a story to tell or don't know how to find that story. And the goal is that this book, by the end of that, they'll find not only a story, but stories from their life. We're a multitude of stories. We have many compelling stories in our lives. But to get there, you know, we have really simple prompts to get you in. So here's an example. Like, think about if your life was a movie, what is a scene that would have to be included? We think about change moments. We think about some people come to us with a really big experience, like maybe a major death or maybe a major life shift, and they don't know how to, quote, tell that story. And then we just start to to zoom in like sort of closer and closer and closer. What are the scenes of this story? How do you feel like these experiences have affected you? Do you feel like you are different before and after these experiences? And then also just thinking about when you go to a party, 
what's the story that everyone always has you tell? And maybe that's the starting point for the sort of larger, maybe deeper story that you'll build. But like, what are the things that kind of stick with you that feel like a part of you that we can use as a starting off point to start to have a conversation and kind of unearth their deeper meaning? Interesting. So is there a like a beginning method to someone who's not yet done any mining of their own memories to find, you know, hey, what are my best stories? Oh, yeah, I didn't even think of that being something that, you know, other people would resonate with or was a formative moment for myself. How do we begin to mine those memories? Well, I mean, there's there's tons of story prompts. There's tons of exercises. You know, you can start by making a list of all of the things that are true about you. Again, thinking about the scenes of your life that you sort of go over, over and over again. What are the kind of experiences that you share over and over again? But I would say if you're asking what is a compelling story, a compelling moth story, and I would consider moth to be the best form of storytelling. That is my biased opinion. (laughs) The two most essential pieces are it has to be a story that the storyteller cares about. You know, we can talk about like the births, the deaths, the big thing, you know, the great loves. Like, obviously, we care about those things, but it can be as small as, you know, learning how to make the best cup of coffee. If that's something that's important to you, if that's something that ties into the world and the experience that you're sharing, you just have to care deeply and be able to communicate that deeply to your audience. And part two is that experience has to have changed you in some way and not like, I started as a freshman art student and ended uh, graduating with a business degree. Like, that's fine. That's an external change. But like, what internally, how has this experience truly affected who you are as a person, at least for the time frame in which the story takes place that you're telling? Gotcha. Okay. Well, and I am familiar with a few different books that talk about storytelling and comparing it to a movie and scripting your life and all of that. And we've even had some conversations about that on this show in the past. There are obviously foundational pieces to a story, things that Mm -hmm. make a good story. And sometimes our life as it plays out, especially in a specific instance that we're telling a story about, it doesn't always have a neat little beginning, middle and end, though when we want to tell the story, we don't want to spin it or polish it. We don't want to lie, but we want to use the existing experience of that story as clay to then mold something that's tellable publicly. Yes. So yeah, we're never only one way, right? So it's there are many ways to tell sort of any experience in your life. And your goal as a storyteller is to decide what is the best telling of this story that I want to tell. I'm of a couple of minds on that. You know, if you're telling a story just to be engaging, you're telling a story on stage at the moth, let's say, or on stage in a storytelling show or what have you, you still have to make those choices. You still have to say, like, what is the story here that I'm going to tell? And understanding that you're going to be editing out, like once you have an idea of that, once you have like maybe a theme or a through line that you can use as an editing tool. So I like to speak concretely about things like this. So like, let's talk about if you're going to tell a story about the time in high school when you crashed your parents' car, you went out without permission with your parents' car and you crashed it. That's a story. So there's a couple of themes you can use to tell that story. It might be a story about responsibility. It might be a story about rebellion. It might be a story about your relationship with your father. Like there's many different sort of lenses that you could use to tell that series of events. So you have to decide what theme for this feels the most true? And then how do I tell that? What information does my listener need so that they can follow me through that emotional experience? And so then that goes back to a little bit coming back to think like, 
When I crashed the car, what did I feel? Did I feel heartbreak because I realized that my father would know that I'm not the good child that he had raised? I've you know disappointed my family. Did I feel a rush because it's the first time I did something bad? That you know, again, we're going back to this honesty, and then that will help you kind of unearth what the theme is of your story, and then you can start piecing together what you need to shape that story. And it could be suddenly that you realize you need this scene with you and your father when you were you know eight years old when you realize that your father was like the pillar of what is right and wrong for you. I'm taking us into a really deep fantasy world. I hope you're with me. That's totally there. Following along. It's like, that's just, are you telling a story to tell an engaging story that is true to your experience? So some of it is about choice, but the choice is always kind of led by reflection. Now go into a setting where you potentially have an agenda in telling your story. Maybe, again, you're using it to open up a business presentation. You know, maybe you are in the business of selling bumpers. So you want to tell this story to really underscore the degree of safety that was necessary to have you walk away from that accident. It's still a personal story, but now you're looking at it through the lens of what is it that I want my audience to hear? What is it that I want my audience to feel emotionally? What's the journey I want my audience to take with me? Again, we're still looking for truth. We're still looking for honesty. We're just adding sort of another layer to the way we edit and shape and craft that story. Gotcha. And so you mentioned the word lens, and I know that there's a part in the book about choosing your lens. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that, and as well as, you know, working with which scenes you're going to include, because again, you could have the same story be a signature story for you. Say you're a public speaker and you're going to be in different audiences presenting on a specific topic, but you tailor it to that specific audience each time. And so you take that story and maybe change the lens and say, okay, what does the audience need to take away? This story still fits, but I need to, you know, pivot it a little bit just to make it fit for them and resonate with them in a different way than that audience last week, for example. So, I mean, we have to remember that every one of us hears stories through the lens of our own experience, too. So, you know, I'm a person living in Brooklyn with two young children. If someone tells a story about living in Brooklyn with two young children, I'm probably going to hear details that say my father, who hasn't had young children in many years, wouldn't hear when hearing the same story. So we have to be hyper aware of that when we're going into different audiences, understanding sort of what they know, what they need to know to orient themselves to the truth of the experience that I'm communicating. So, you know, are people, for example, politically aligned with me? Do they have the same level of sophisticated knowledge that I do? Do they have a higher degree of sophistication? Do I not need to give any sort of orienting details into the world that I'm in? But we need to orient them very quickly, particularly at the top of the story, to who we are and where we are in the world of the story that is something that they can access. And part of that is a universal of just being able to tell a great story and being specific in storytelling. And part of that is a sensitivity to perhaps your audience is going to hear this story differently, depending on what details you include or exclude. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent 
fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How would you suggest somebody who, again, in that same example where they're maybe speaking or telling this story in different contexts or instances to especially different audiences, how can they, ahead of time, find out more about that future audience and be able to prepare ahead of time to tweak or better tell the story to their needs? It's a good question. And I think it's, to be totally frank, it's a somewhat dangerous question because we want to, you know, we want to make sure that the editing that we're doing it is for the benefit of the story and the communication of what we're trying to say. We're not trying to craft stories in a way that is misleading or untrue to the story that we're telling. I think there's like a, a richer, deeper conversation about the way we show up when we are of a community or separate from a community and how we communicate our stories in a way that takes care of us as a teller and also takes care of the audience. So that's, you know, that's kind of broader thoughts on it. But, you know, I would say like, depending on your context, let's speak with examples. Like if I am a person who is living with cancer, who's going to speak to a bunch of doctors and specialists, I know that there's a lot of shorthand that I can share in my story that they're going to understand. And that what's most important to me when I'm speaking to that audience is that the caregivers understand the patient experience. And that's what I bring to the forefront of my story. Now, it being a personal story, that would be at the forefront anyway, and that would probably why you're telling it. But the understanding of like, what is it that they don't know and how can I anchor the story in the world that they do know so that they're hearing the experience that they've come here to hear or that I've come to share. Well, and I think that you were alluding to, especially when we're talking about, we want to remain truthful and we want to not have to change all the details or you know change things up so drastically. I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. And I think that kind of falls in that realm here where you know a stand-up comic, if you're going to go see them, you kind of know ahead of time if you're familiar with them at all what you're going to get. Now, they may pull out some old favorites, but mostly they're working on new stuff or are using new material that they have crafted. To a certain extent, they actually take a lot more leeway, as I've heard them talk about the craft of joke telling. That's not exactly the same as storytelling, though it's akin to it in a certain way. But that's what it makes me feel like is, okay, that person knows what they're going to say. They're not going to change it per the audience because they already assume the audience is here to see me for a reason. So I don't have to change anything. Yeah, I mean, we can go with the stand-up analogy a little bit further. You know, when a stand-up is working on a set in particular, but even in a more polished environment, there is a type of dialogue that goes on. And I think even more so, I would say in storytelling, although you can't paint stand-up with broad strokes, but it's like a dialogue where one person is talking. So I may go into a room, I have a general idea of who's in the room. I'm telling a story, you know, because I want people to be excited about something that I care deeply about. I can sense if I'm losing the audience, if there's a long breath of silence, maybe I get more laughter than I expected. I can sort of pause. I can lean into a joke, add another line. Like stories and stand up, but let's speak to my primary expertise here being storytelling. The best stories are not fully scripted word for word. They're landing pads, we call them sometimes. You know, you go from idea to idea to idea. Now, if you've told a story many times, most of the words that you say are going to be exactly the same every time. We just get used to it. You know what it's like when you have your greatest hit at a party, you know, kind of some of the killer beats. But you have to be willing 
to take in what the audience is giving you, maybe giving them more space, maybe giving more explanation in the moment than you think that you needed to, or, you know, leaning into humor or leaning into silence. That is kind of the beauty. And I think where the true honesty of this form comes through is that it's alive when it's happening. In a lot of ways, that's what it makes it uh, resonate more. And I mean, it can happen even in a virtual environment. There is something, though, almost an element to theater, why theater feels different than, say, watching a movie in a theater. It's that human connection, that storytelling that's literally happening in front of you. Absolutely. I come from a theater background. And when I went to the Moth for the first time in 2007, back in the oldie days, the biggest thing for me that having been in, you know, straight theater, music theater, comedy, you know, been a part of all of that, that this was the most connected that I ever felt in a theatrical setting. I am at the point where my co-authors tease me because I always say this, but I will say it for you. It felt to me like everyone in the room was breathing the same breath. And that was magic. Mm. That we laughed together, that we paused together, that I was having this incredibly intimate, vulnerable experience with 200 strangers. And I was like completely hooked. That was it for me. Yeah. Speaking of humor, one of the things that hooks me a lot is when humor is used in storytelling, but it's not the only emotion. How can we start to know the ways to incorporate humor as well as other emotions into our storytelling as appropriate? Yeah. I mean, as appropriate is always the key. I think you have to look at why you are feeling compelled to make a joke first, that first and foremost. So because humor can do many things, it can shine a light on something, but it can also emotionally distance. So are you making a joke in this moment because it is too much for you to emotionally deal with? Or are you making a joke because that is a way to illuminate what you're trying to say? I would say if it's the latter, then maybe the joke stays. If it's the former, that's actually a really great tell for you as a storyteller because it's someplace that you want to explore further. And you can explore it further and say, well, what is the honest truth of this situation? You know, I truly care about this and maybe I haven't fully processed why I care about this. And you can dig into that more deeply and say, oh, I'll communicate it this way, cut the joke and actually speak the truth. Or I'm telling a joke because I'm not ready to tell this story. I'm not ready to get to this truth and to communicate this truth, in which case that can be your sort of flag to be like, let's put this story on the shelf for, you know, a week, a month, two years, three years, the rest of my life. You know, again, we're using truth as a North Star. If we drank every time I said truth in our conversation, everyone would be very drunk right now. So I think we've we've made that point. But, you know, no event in our life is only exclusively tragic. You know, even the the saddest moments of our lives have moments of levity. And so the humor needs to be honest, but the humor will come particularly if you're a funny person. You know, if you're a funny person, you don't just stop laughing for long stretches of your life. You just maybe laugh less or laugh about different things. So it can be a real gift, particularly in a heavier story, to make the story feel actually as unique and textured as the human experience is and not let me pull you into this depressing hole. And a lot of the time, an audience almost needs a laugh early in the story to have permission to laugh, to know that, you know, we're sort of going on a journey together. We're not just jumping into a tragic pit. Yeah, I I agree with that. And one of the things that, you know, when it comes to humor, you know, some people say that the phrase too soon, like making a joke about something too soon after it has happened. But what's funny is, is that literally funny, even uh, what's interesting is that humor can often be a coping mechanism in a healthy way, though we often have heard it used in a negative way. My daughter and I, she's 
up in her high school years. And right now she is watching with me the show Friends on HBO Max. And <laughs> she's never seen it, but she'd seen other things. And I'm like, okay, you've seen that. You've got to come back and watch this. So we were kind of just going through it. And obviously one of the characters in the show is Chandler. And that's one of his things is like, he just is quippy, but it, he admits like it's a defense mechanism. When I'm uncomfortable or things are awkward, like I make a joke to kind of break the tension or to deflect. And yeah. Neither of those things is inherently bad. Even deflecting can be good sometimes. Letting the air out of the tense situation can be great. And obviously, one of the things that Monty Python is good at is just the absurdity of life sometimes. And yeah. you just got to laugh at it. It's crazy, ironic circumstance, but the only way to deal with it is laughter. Totally, totally. I mean, I mean you know, it, humor speaks truth to power, which I think it, it was one of my favorite uses for humor and comedy. But that is, you know, calling out absurdity. You know, another thing, though, that I think we can look at is great storytellers are vulnerable. A great story is not, I was great. Here's an example of me being great. And now look at me continuing to be great. Goodbye. You know, that's mm -hmm. not interesting to anyone. And so humor is a great way to show vulnerability. If you can sort of laugh at yourself or being awkward or being weird or not knowing. And, you know, these are the moments that the audience leans in for. And oftentimes there's great humor in that. Yeah, that's self-deprecation without doing real harm. It's just, uh, hey, I'm letting you in on the joke that I am also laughing at, which is me. In this moment. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's enough about humor. I think for a while we can, okay. although we'll still laugh. But uh, I think one of the keys here, though, is, you know, someone may feel like, as we were talking about earlier, the ideal scenario or ideal audience for this book is someone who may not be aware they have stories to tell or maybe feels like they do, but isn't sure how to go about it. One of the issues they may have is having anxiety or nerves or just lack of confidence in being able to be prepared to tell a story, especially on a stage. What are some ways that we can start to overcome those hangups so that we can tell a story? Yeah. So this is where the deceptively simple work of the moth comes in. So as you may or may not know, if you go to one of our main stage curated events or most of the stories you hear in our podcast and radio, we work with storytellers one-on-one -on -one to help them craft their stories so that when they get to the stage, the story is true to themselves. It's in their own voice. They've worked one-on-one -on -one with a moth director, including the co-authors of the book, to be their best selves on stage. We're not just throwing them in front of a microphone in the main stage context. And there's a few ways that you can sort of, you know, replicate that experience to some degree in your own life. And part of that is, and I'm going to say two things that sound almost counter to each other, but stay with me. Part of it is you do have to spend time preparing. It is your life. It is your own experience. We are looking for, you know, truth on stage, but like there is real thoughtfulness that goes into it. What scenes am I going to include? What's true? What, you know, everything that we've talked about in the lead up until now. And so when you're doing this on your own, you, you take that on on yourself, but you can also just find someone to bounce ideas off. Like when I say this, do you hear this? Is this confusing? You know, kind of making that process. So there is like several rounds of thinking and then actually standing up and speaking the words that you've maybe written down at first out loud. Most of the time, I would say the way we write is different than the way that we speak. So if you are writing something to be spoken, you need to speak it several times before you speak it on a stage. It will be different than what you've put down on a page. And it is one of the best ways to edit is to try to do that and then chuck the notes and try to do it by memory. And you will find what doesn't feel true to my own voice, what doesn't connect, what am I getting bored hearing myself say, maybe I should reorder this so that the ideas flow into each other because when I'm remembering it, I'm not remembering it in that way. That will start to answer some of those questions. 
in the moth process, you would have a moth director doing that with you and sort of answering those questions. But those are the kind of things you can ask yourself on your own. So that when you get to the stage, you know specifically your first line, you know specifically your last line, and you have supreme confidence in the flow of what you're about to share with your audience because you've done it several times before and you've edited and thought it through. Okay, so that's thought one. Thought B is... Humans are drawn to humans. We care about people. And when someone shows up as their most honest and authentic self, we lean in and want to listen. So you do not have to be polished. You have to prepare the push unpolished. Obviously, this depends slightly depending on the room that you're in. It's just a matter of you showing up and sharing your experience of giving that time. You can say, I forgot this one part. I, I, I forgot I needed to tell you this one thing. Let me tell you now, you can pause if you get overwhelmed with emotion. You can get the giggles even for a second if the audience is in a big laugh. Like being present and and being in the moment is going to be far more compelling than taking a class about whether you should fake leave with your hands. And one of the things that's coming to mind as you're saying this is that even somebody who's polished and has a ton of experience under their belt in terms of public speaking still has nerves that happen, or at least that's my experience, is it doesn't go away, but you just also have this huge, almost tinfoil ball that you add a new tinfoil piece to that's got more weight to it, right? <laughs> there's there's an image for you. that uh, every time you've done another talk, whether it was successful or not, you've put another piece of tinfoil on that huge ball and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it outweighs Though the feelings can feel huge inside you, it's concrete. Well, it's metaphorical still, too. But in other words, you've got another opposing view that says, oh, right, this again. You've done this before. And even if you feel a certain way right now, you'll just do it again like you did last time you felt this and did it anyway and so on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you get more and more in tune to your audience and then you get more capable at staying engaged with your audience the more you do it. I will say this. This is the way I deal with nerves. I stand on stage in a lot of different contexts from moth shows to I get brought into meetings and big presentations. And sometimes I'm on a lab or it's a standing mic or so, you know, there are all these like moving pieces that I just have to jump into. And the way that I get through it, if I do get nervous, is that for better or for worse, I think it's 30 minutes. It's however many minutes. If it's, you know, in a, in a hyper corporate context, I've got a clock counting me down. I know exactly how many minutes I have at everything. And at the end, if I am lucky, I will still be alive. And that's all that matters. Whatever happens on this stage is not more important than the fact that I will be walking off the stage and everyone will move on to something else. And making that experience, you know, still giving it the huge importance that it has, of course, and doing all the preparation that we talked about. And and it just helps me stay out of the chaos of nerves and, you know, of everything else and think like, I just have to do it well for 30 minutes and I will survive. I know that that is actually one of the five things that you've listed somewhere. I know I read this by you to be a highly effective (laughs) public speaker. I'm trying to think one of the other four, I should say, is hydrating, which I think, man, that's amazing. Uh, People don't know this, but I'm going to reveal this. I'll pull the curtain back. I will often mute the mic here and take a sip while the guest is speaking because it, it gives me the nervous tick kind of moment and then set it back down, hopefully not spilling it. Then there you go. Like, I okay, I'm back in the moment. It helps me concentrate. It helps me maintain interactivity during these conversations. I'm a huge fan of hydration. It's I drink a lot of water, but I've never heard it described in that way. But that does make perfect sense. It's like a way to sort of like punctuate and pause in a, in a way that doesn't feel awkward. But for me, it's simply like it's just your mouth dries out. 
when you're nervous, like your mouth (laughs) dries out when you're super nervous and, you know, tied to the hydration thing is, I think it's, it's perfectly fair. And I think it's really relatable to go on stage and say like, Oh, I'm a little bit nervous. Depending on, again, we're looking at different, I'm speaking of many contexts. I'm trying to cover the many contexts for storytelling. So we have to calibrate for each of them, but I think people understand that that's one thing. But if you go on stage and, you know, your knees are knocking or your hands are flailing, that is, you know, you, you get to a point where you tip to the point where you're audience is like, why am I listening to this person? This person is not confident in what they're saying or not ready to say what they're saying, et cetera. So I would hydrate. And then you set that water bottle down. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, don't, yeah. don't stand there shaking the water, but make sure, yeah, that you've got it so that you're not in the middle of your story suddenly going to be thrown by your lessening ability to speak. Well, even going back to stand-up comedians, as we were mentioning them earlier, I kind of take notice of when it is they walk over to the stool that's on the stage with them and they grab the bottle of water and they take a sip. And it's often, I've noticed, it's kind of one of those, okay, they've grabbed it and they're punctuating a joke or a story. And then they take a sip. It's them not standing there awkward or feeling awkward. They're doing something that's got a purpose while the audience is reacting and laughing and then you wait it's it's almost like a sitcom where the next person wouldn't start their joke yet till the laugh track had finished yeah i mean the level of geekery in your observation is impressive and but i'm 100% with you yes exactly it's a way of, <laughs> it's like a way of staying active on stage when you don't actually have a job to do yeah one of the other things is again you talked a little bit about this earlier is is preparing but not necessarily memorizing why is that Oh, yeah. Well, so um, when you memorize a story, when you come on stage or wherever you are to share it, your brain is in the words. What is, you know, the cat ran over the dog. When you remember the scenes of the story, the moments of the story, you connect, you're far more likely to connect to the emotion of it. And you take your audience through the journey of that story with you. And that means that if you do, for example, forget a word, you're more likely to be like, oh, I can can go back to that. Or if you say something slightly differently than you had originally written it, you're not thrown. You're just saying it in the way that in that moment feels like the best way to communicate what it is that you want to say. Again, I keep going back to to comedians. I've seen one Jim Gaffigan. I saw him sitting on Conan O'Brien's show yeah. and telling a story about a bear <laughs> and hiking. <laughs> so people may be familiar, you know, where I'm going with this. And then I saw him do it in person when I saw him at a stadium. And then I saw it on the special itself. And all three instances, he told it differently. But there was a couple of key punctuation places where he would use specific words with specific beats and a specific rhythm. And now that's all worked out by him. But what you're saying is that's not necessarily memorization so much as you've worn the groove in of the language that's most potent for that instance, for that story to convey that emotion or that information. Is that right? Exactly. It, you you know the, the places that you have to hit, but by telling it from a place of remembering the experience versus remembering the words, you're able to to really tell it in its most present sense. Absolutely. And you, you've got it kind of in your bones. So it can be really a part of you speaking versus you saying words. And the other key piece there being that if you're memorizing words, you have more of an anxiety to trip up on them. Even the most anxiety-ridden person, if you ask them, hey, what happened there? What was that story again? And if it's not a traumatizing type story to them, their instant 
inclination is almost to start to giggle a little bit or whatever and then just start to, oh, yeah, well, see, we would, you know, and then they just jump into it. It's night and day between memorization and just being invited to tell the story. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think it, you know, it, it gets back to this idea of like, do we tell people what they should be or do we let them, you know, how do you let people be their best selves? And when you, your, your best self, if you're just able to be and not set by parameters of, you know, but you actually said that the sentence you said read before house and this time you said it after, you know, there's just a different connection that we have to communicating when we're being able to speak from our feelings versus our, you know, some sort of set of arbitrary rules. So I'd like to spend a few moments here as we kind of wrap up. I'd, I'd love to pivot into the workplace, whether that's virtual, whether that's a job interview or it's a presentation or it's a leader getting up and giving like a keynote. What do we have to keep in mind when it comes to those kinds of professional storytelling opportunities? Well, I would say first and foremost, you know, you have to make space for storytelling. Great storytelling, as I was saying before, comes from a place of vulnerability. And I think that's, you know, truly a cultural uh, businesses aren't set up for that. You know, I think we pride ourselves on efficiency. We pride ourselves on systems. And can you get X to Y? But if you want to use storytelling in your workplace and, you know, you've we've sort of laid out all of the many ways that you can, there needs to be space for it. It needs to be valued. So you can start with you can do a storytelling workshop and have people share their stories together. Do you open meetings with stories? Do you start to think about the ways that people personally connect to the values of a company through their own personal stories? And then we have to just give space to communicating and sharing that. I would say if you're looking to incorporate storytelling in your work, that's the first thing that you have to consider. It's not probably going to happen well organically, even though it's the most natural thing in the world. Then I think we have to start to to then think specifically about how we want to use story, like who's telling the stories and how do we want to use story and what are the stories that we're telling? And that's something to be really thoughtful about because stories can be a huge catalyst for cultural change. So what are the stories that we want to be sharing and repeating and communicating? And I think even that exercise itself can provide a lot of clarity to go back to the very first thing that you said. We've covered a lot of things already in terms of, you know, getting over the initial anxiety, you know, realizing that you have a story to tell, obviously mining for memories to use stories in a professional setting may take a little bit more filtering because again, it's a professional setting. But again, at the same time, depending upon the culture that you're in, it might be more appropriate to tell a humorous story or a self-deprecating story to a certain extent. But you, you kind of have to have a feel for that culture first to know if that's okay. Absolutely. I mean, and what I, one of the things that I have found most surprising about when I started to lead workshops in corporate settings is that there is no sort of way of knowing the culture of a company or of an organization. I mean, there are, you could talk to the employees, but I'm saying you can't just guess it by who they are. People in financial services aren't necessary. I'm speaking in broad strokes. Obviously, people with a technical mind are going to have a different type of mind, but like a financial services company could have an amazingly inclusive culture. And then you go into like a 
creative agency and everyone's buttoned it up and there's no vulnerability. It's really fascinating to me, which speaks to the power of when you create those more open workspaces, you can still do very highly sophisticated technical work. I mean, the stories help us communicate. Stories help us connect. Stories help us decipher big ideas. It doesn't, it's not simply a culture of inclusivity that ends with that boundary. It sort of permeates throughout well, as we wrap up here, obviously, this book is great, not just from a productivity standpoint, but from a life standpoint. Like, we all tell stories. We all need to be better at telling stories, not just from an entertainment purpose, but also from a, a life and a growing purpose and a connection purpose. So I'd love to have you tell me, and, you know, by the way, you're one of many, many authors. I'm glad. I, yeah, I don't know that I could have had. I've had, you know, once where I had two people, once where I had three, I think, but I've never had, like, what was it, five or six or seven different people all at once? <laughs> so, but I'm glad I got to talk to you, Kate. Where can we direct people to, to one, find out more about the book, dive in a little bit, and as well as find out more about The Moth, and then I can link up to all these things in the show notes. So I'm one of five authors, which is more authors than I've ever seen on the cover of a book, and a delightful and interesting exercise in productivity and writing in and of itself. And you can find us at themoth.org. You can find everything about the book. You can find links to buy the book and listen to stories and learn more about this organization that I am so lucky to be a part of. Perfect. And we're recording this in mid 2022. What's the state of, you know, in-person collective moth events and workshops? Oh, it's happening. We're everywhere. Check our website and you can find us live. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah, I wanted to tag that on there just in case we can, uh, you know, push people if they're if they're able to locally get involved with that. So amazing. Kate, Awesome. Talking with you. Can't express enough how good a book this is for people to jump into this world and perfect something that they may already be doing or cultivate a skill that they didn't even know they needed and could be good at. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Kate Tellers. I did. In fact, I know that I really need to hone my craft a bit more when it comes to storytelling, and this book is great for that. You'll find the link for this book in the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Also, if you want to find shortcast versions that I've partnered with Blinkist on, you can find those shortcast episodes of Beyond the To-Do List, a seven to 10 minute version of past episodes of this show. You can find that at beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you found value here, I know somebody else that you know will as well. Would you do me the favor of sharing this episode with them? Think of that one person. Click the share button in your podcast player app of choice, or again, over on those show notes and share this over to them. Send it to them. Let them know what you thought about this episode and why you thought it would help them out. Thank you for helping them. Thank you for doing me that favor of sharing it. Thank you for listening. And I will see you next episode. <laughs>